Hello, hello. Get ready for a journey through time with the Historians podcast, hosted by myself, Derek Mulligan, and my co-historian, Neil Federson-Hall. We invite you into our virtual living room for weekly fireside chats with world-renowned historians and authors. From ancient history to present day, the Historians covers it all with guests who have lived and experienced the stories they share. Join myself and Neil as we whiz back and forth through time, exploring the truth behind historical events that turn out to be way stranger and more exciting than fiction. So grab a cuppa and get ready to be transported to another time and place. Tune in now to join our history-loving community. Here we go. Well, hello, historians. Welcome to a real treat today, uh, a true heavyweight of narrative history. We have Miles joining us to talk about his books, Checkmate in Berlin, and maybe a little bit about a podcast that he has released, which is very exciting indeed. It's a, an investigative piece of work uh, for sure. Um, I'm really excited uh, to have Giles Milton with us here today. So hello, Giles. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks for having me on. Delighted to be here. So you're actually a seasoned podcaster uh, yourself. You're also a prodigious writer of narrative history. Twelve books in the bag. Is that right? I know. It seems sort of incredible, really. But but, but there it is. Yeah. Um, and as you said, this uh, this podcast series, I've just been doing narrative podcast series called Ministry of Secrets, which is one, one of the great mysteries of the Cold War, um, which has been absolutely fascinating to do. We've interviewed the most incredible people, and it's quite a story. Yeah, and you're at that stage as well. I know you talk about the start of the episode where this is the last chance to really get to the bottom of it because a lot of the the actors have all since passed and they're really you know trying to get i mean try I mean, what was the percentage again you do mention of information that is actually released by uh whitehall it's so it's really really small percentage isn't it minuscule sort of two or three percent of all documents you know that actually gets released into the public domain so what this story is of the story of a missing spy a spy a british spy who went missing in the cold war was never seen again and the papers the file on this story um is being kept uh from secret by whitehall to this day which seems absolutely extraordinary. They won't release it till 2057. So we were determined to solve this mystery. And so we went, we went to all sorts of places, all sorts of interviews. I mean, we amazingly, we found the journalist, 90 years old, who covered the original story and the original cover-up, which started in 1956. So, so we had access to, you know, like you say, this is really the last moment to catch these people. Um, and and an, another, you know, great interviewee we had was this 97-year-old. You're going to have to oh. wait till episode eight for that. <laughs> he has a big reveal for us. <laughs> Brilliant. That's the kind of thing we love on, on uh, historians. And bringing history to life, that's really what I like about uh, your writing as well. You have a real way about you of taking sometimes quite scant information and creating this really vivid imagery of the events and the people involved and maybe using creative license on that. But again, you know, you can make some really salient points about history while being accessible to the general public and people who may not really read all that much history. And that, I'm an amateur historian. This is what it's all about. We're trying to bring it you know, to life for people because you kind of have to learn about the past to, to realise, you know, perhaps 
what kind of governments that we are being, you know, governed by. Uh, like uh, this thing about Lionel Crab as well. It's you know, it kind of it smacks a little bit of the whole JFK thing. Like just release the information, let us know what's going on, what what can be, you know, so important. I mean, the British government on that is is notorious and is getting worse and worse every single year for holding on to secrets. And it's it's just extraordinary that they can, they, you know, they can cover up for their mates, basically, by not releasing this paperwork. No one ever knows what's taking place, what's really going on. And that's pretty worrying because, you know, they're, they're, they're artificially curating our, our history. We, if we don't get to know these things, you don't get they don't expose things, and it's very hard to actually, you know, reconstruct what's really going on. Yeah, of course, of course. And we, we just obviously we just go along with our uh, iPhones in hand, just blissfully unaware of what's what's happening around <laughs> us. Uh, we're trying to chill to everybody a little bit out. I don't know, albeit people probably listen to this on their mobile devices, and uh, but it might get them thinking nevertheless. So yeah, to talk a little bit about Checkmate in Berlin, a really interesting time as far as I'm concerned. The start of the Cold War, the end of the Second World War. You've got real sinister characters like. Stalin and Molotov and all these people and the whole new world order that's supposed to be designed at this meeting in Yalta goes pear-shaped from from the beginning because you have a very sick and and weak uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt. He's got congenital heart uh, disease and you've got Churchill, like you described, this is a little bit revisionist in, in your opinion on how Churchill behaved. So you might paint us a little bit of a picture for our listeners there. What the fuck yeah, that? I mean, just to, to give a bit of background, the conference in Yalta, which was at the beginning of 1945, it was clear that the Allies had w- were going to win the Second World War. So that's Britain, America, and of course, the Soviet Union. They get together, the big three, Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt, to really thrash out a new world order. Who is going to get what? Who's going to control what territory? And what was what became apparent reading, I read a lot of the diaries behind the scenes, the letters that people were writing, the, the players, you know, who were sort of in the corridors listening in. And what really became apparent was that Stalin was a brilliant negotiator and brilliant at getting what he wanted. As you say, Roosevelt was extremely ill. In fact, he'd be de- in dead within a few months. He was literally dying. And Churchill was very old. He was very, he was weary. He was war weary. And he was drinking very heavily. Uh, a, a number of his aides made, you know, consistent comments about the fact that he was drinking far too much. As um, one of his aides said, he was drinking bucketfuls of Caucasian champagne. And uh, he rambled along with his speeches, and so did Roosevelt. And Stalin just sort of cut through all this. And Stalin was, of course, in a very strong position because the Red Army already controlled most of the territories that he coveted. Eastern Europe, Central Europe, they were pushing uh, pushing towards the German frontier, you know. So, so Stalin was in a very strong position. And this made a, makes a sort of fascinating starting point for my book, which then goes on to explore really the first uh, four to five years of the Cold War and how this military alliance that worked so well between the Soviet Union on one side and the Brits and Americans on the other, how this dramatically uh, fell apart and and the Cold War began in that period. It was some of the, I suppose, not even generals, but you're, you're talking about Colonel uh, Howlamad Howley. He kind of had the, the Soviets twigged from the start. He kind of really saw through all, all the veneer and said, these guys are our enemy. They're not our friends. Yeah. 
And that, that's that's an important. And actually, to go back to your earlier point about making bringing history alive, this in essence, it's a big geopolitical story. It's a story of a struggle for control of Europe. But I didn't, you know, that could be very dry as a subject. So what I wanted to do is tell it through the characters on the ground, the the four commandants of the four sectors of the divided city of Berlin. And as you say, the the American commandant was uh, this extraordinary colonel, uh, Frank Howling Mad Howley, who was a sort of all-American cowboy, a fantastic character. Um, And he was the commander of the American zone, uh, the American sector of divided Berlin. And as you say, right from the beginning, he knew that the Soviets could not be trusted, that the post-war alliance that had worked so well during the war was finished, you know, and that the Soviets should now be considered the enemy. And so by telling the story through the four commandants, British, American, French and Soviet, and the breakdown in their relationship, it almost exactly mirrored the breakdown in, in international relations between these countries. So it was a very personal personable way to tell quite a complex story. Maybe take us into some of the the escapades of the commandants or some of the events that that happened uh, during the early part of of this period. Yeah, I mean, right from the beginning, really, um, the relationship between the Soviets and their so-called Western partners was a complete disaster. Of course, the Soviet, the Red Army was first into uh, Berlin. And the first thing they did was loot um, absolutely everything, take everything uh, away, not only the museums, the galleries, you know, they took away some of the greatest masterpieces of, of, of European civilization from these museums, but they took absolutely everything from the sectors that were going to be run by the Americans and British. So when they got there, they found that, you know, what hadn't been bomb damaged by the war was had been looted and ransacked by the Soviets. And here's here's an order from one of the Soviets. He, he, he told his troops, he said, take everything you can from the Western sectors of Berlin. If you can't take it, destroy it. Don't leave anything to the Allies, not even a pot to pee in. So by the time the Americans and Brits got into the city, which was uh, some six weeks after the Soviets, they found that their, the areas of the city they were to run had been totally looted. There was just nothing left. The city itself, I mean, there was like all the, all the Germans were literally shell-shocked, you know, ex-soldiers wandering about aimlessly, not really knowing uh, what was happening. And obviously there was a lot of, of rape by the Russian soldiers as well. That was a, a big problem, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I really looked at a lot of accounts from Germans who were in Berlin at the time, and they are harrowing to read. They really are. The The Red Army was a rabble. It was drunk. It was brutal. I mean, you know, what we see going on in Ukraine now is exactly what was taking place in 1945 in Berlin. Countless thousands, tens of thousands of women were raped. And remember, this was a city without men. There were virtually no men in Berlin at the time. They were, they were all... Um, either fighting or they were dead or prisoners of war. So it was a very difficult situation. There was no there was no food, there was no gas, there was no electricity, there was no running water. This was a city in total ruins. And so, uh, you know, when when the um, both the Soviets um, came in and then afterwards the Brits and Americans, they found themselves running a city with a lot of people in it, cowering in their cellars, but with absolutely none of the infrastructure needed to run a you know a huge city. So it was an immensely difficult time, logistically particularly. What do you think might have stopped the Soviets from really marching right through Germany? You know, did they? Do you think they feared? the allies or well, do you think they had any kind of knowledge perhaps of the you know the development of the atomic bomb did they feel in fear in some way because i mean they, they really had the momentum they, they I, I mean they probably could have taken germany if they wanted to. 
Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, what um, what was clear the the goal for both the Western, uh, the British and Americans, and and the Soviets at the beginning, the goal for everyone was Berlin. This was the great prize they wanted to capture at the end of the war. But then Eisenhower changed his mind in the beginning of 1945, and he decided that the destruction of the German army was more important than the capture of Berlin. Stalin did not change his mind. He decided the capture of Berlin was the great prize. You know. Um, and so, um, so, and he got it. You know, he he won the city. And there's a there's a there's a very very famous photo uh, which many of your listeners I think will will probably be familiar with, which is called the flag, the red flag over the Reichstag. And this is a famous photo of the stars and um, of the hammer and sickle being raised over the Reichstag. And this was taken by a photographer. I put the story in the book because it's really interesting by a photographer called uh, Yevgeny Kaldai. Um, and he had been inspired by the other equally famous photo of the Stars and Stripes being raised over Iwo Jima. There's a famous picture of three or four men you know, holding it up. And this was a very, very powerful propaganda picture. And it was it was transmitted around the world by the Soviet Union because this picture um, showed uh, showed to the world that it was the Soviets and the Soviets alone who'd captured the heart of, of, of the Third Reich. And so, I mean, right from the outset, I think the, the, the Stalin wanted to make this absolutely clear and cons- consistently said that the Red Army had won the Second World War and very much belittled the role of the Americans and British in the final victory. Yeah, and of course, it was one of the, the commandants, uh, Gorbachev, uh, really belittled uh, the, the Americans and, and really wanted to make them feel that, listen, you know, we won the war. You did, you guys didn't didn't do anything. It's a fair enough comment. I, you know, I suppose a, a lot of the Russians felt Stalingrad was was the, the turning point. You know, when, when they defeated von Baalis there, that's when the Germans started, started to go on, on the retreat. It's amazing how the whole thing managed to stay and, and develop as, as it did. Stalin, you know, certainly was a, well, we've come to, to learn of, of him as evil. Do you think with Truman becoming president later on, do you think that had an impact on politics in, in Berlin? I think so. But just to sort of paint a little picture of how it was working in Berlin, you've got these four commandants of the four sectors, and they would meet regularly in a body called the Commandatura, which is where they would discuss issues that really affected the city as a whole. So rationing, denazification, demilitarization, all, all these things. And this what's extraordinary, I must say, when I went to Berlin, I went to the building in which the Commandatura was held and, and I went to the door. The door was, it was open. So I pushed my way in and, uh, and someone eventually said, you know, what are you doing here? And I explained, I was writing this book. And he said, oh, well, the room where they met, he said, it's, it's up on the first floor. It's, it's not changed since 1945. So he took me up there and I walked into this room and it was absolutely extraordinary. This room where they had these tremendous arguments about the future of Berlin is exactly, it's like it's preserved in aspect. It's exactly as it was in 1945. And and it gets even better because every single word ever uttered in that room was recorded by a team of stenographers. So it's almost like we have a time capsule you here. So I could absolutely sort of vividly bring to life what actually took place between uh, the Americans and Brits on one side and the Soviets on the other um, as as this this wartime alliance began to fall apart. And I mean, Colonel Frank Howling Mad Howley, the American commandant, I mean, he was blunt spoken when speaking to his Soviet opposite number. He'd say things like, you lie, you always lie. And no matter what you tell me, it's never going to be the truth. This gives some idea of the rancor that there was taking place in this room. And it really mirrors the whole collapse of the world into two separate camps, the West and, and the Soviets.
And how did the French factor in with all this? The French, are, they have a small role in my book because they had a small role in Berlin. They initially, Stalin didn't want the French to have any say in Berlin whatsoever. He, he said very dismissively, what did, what did they do in the Second World War? You know, why should they get a, pri- a share of the prize? But the Americans and British insisted that the French should have a slice of Berlin. And Stalin said, well, OK, reluctantly, he said, OK, but it comes out of your, your half of Berlin. I'm not giving up any of the east of the city um, to the French. So the French did have, um, they got their slice and of course, this was this was important because each of each of the four commandants had a veto over what was decided. So although they had the poorest, most destroyed area of Berlin, the French nevertheless did have quite a quite a voice in the running of the city. What you were saying there about visiting the Commandatura in in Berlin, amazing that these places are still you know uh, preserved like this, and that must be the really exciting part of the job. So w- when you begin to write, you've obviously you visit places, so that's obviously helps you. You, you bring it to life. Uh, you do most of your writing in um, London Library, is that correct? It is, yeah. Wonderful private library in the centre of London, which I, which is, it's a huge, got a huge collection, a million books. They're all history and art subjects, and and they've got a fantastic collection on Second World War and Cold War, etc. So I go there. I like to get out of the house and and write. I've got a few few uh, mates there and you know occasionally we go to the pub after work (laughs) 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 it's a very nice place to work but most of my books uh, and particularly this one are drawn from original diaries and letters so I have to find the original source material so I was very fortunate that Colonel Frank Howling Mad Howley wrote a very detailed daily diary of his life in Berlin also the British commandant who we we mustn't forget because he's quite a character very eccentric um, who was called Brigadier Robert Looney Hind. Um, he, he was a product of British India. And in fact, the British sort of tended to run their sector of Berlin as if they were in the Raj, you know, it was like lording it over the natives. Um, and um, I was in touch with his family, who had quite a lot of his papers as well. So it's always fascinating to, um, and his daughters, in fact, had gone out to stay with him um, in 1946, 1947. So they had incredible memories of the the balls, the parties, because you've got to remember that there was there were two worlds going on in Berlin at the time. There was the, the Berliners who were downtrodden, they were starving, they had no food, they had no heating they had no glass in their windows and then you had the allied troops who were living the most extraordinary lives of luxury they requisitioned the finest villas a lot of the villas in the west of the city hadn't been bombed so they they requisitioned the villas they requisitioned the mercedes they requisitioned the maids and the domestic staff so they lived um, incredibly uh you know luxurious lives in a city of total ruins and of course there were women. They were not allowed to fraternise with the local German population, the Berlin population. And in fact, there was a fine of $65 if they for chatting up local women, which they lead to, I, I don't know if you know the expression, the $65 question. That is based from this time in Berlin when they were fined $65. What the soldiers would say is copulation without conversation is not fraternisation. So um, ordinary life going on and also the world of the black market, the world of crime. There's crime everywhere in the city at the time. There were ex-Nazis, there were spies, there were prostitutes. I mean, it's such a melting pot of things going on that it's a, it was an incredibly exciting thing to write about, you know. It's the birth of real spycraft as well. That, 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 that really took off. Um, they were only learning about spying in the First World War, really. And it really got into the mysterious stuff there. And it was the Russians were particularly good at the parting, right? They, they, they drank a lot of vodka and uh, really got along. Yeah. 
it's extraordinary the absolute excess of some of these banquets and parties and god knows what i mean uh, it's extraordinary and as i say in in a city where everyone is starving it's just these two parallel worlds um which are completely separate from one another which is makes it so interesting um and also as i say the the crime is really fascinating i mean again many of your listeners might have watched the film monuments men which is a hollywood movie saying how brilliant the americans were at you know rescuing all these works of art well up to a point but also some of them were completely corrupt and were taking it back to america and selling it on so um you know they went they went all uh, do-gooders uh in on on the on the british and american side either now everyone tries to make a book somehow same thing happened to vietnam war and every other war that, 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 got, <laughs> exactly. that go, goes on there these type of stories and books that describe those events in the way that you do are, are just gold and then you know bringing these characters uh, to life describe the, the process of your writing like i mean there's a vast amount of reading i know i i can only imagine that in the, the place that you do your writing is a is a bit of osmosis going on you're just absorbing the history around you and um, but you know obviously you've got to, you've got to get your set of characters who you want to write about then you've got to go find the diaries then you've got to read the diaries looking for all this stuff that must take an age immensely time consuming it really does take a time because yeah like you say you've got to absorb the material and then you've got to work out how you're going to tell the story which is both faithful to the history but also brings it to life so what i tend to do with for example with colonel howley's diaries they they were housed in um they're in Pennsylvania, actually, in an army college in Pennsylvania. So I went there. What I do, I, I now tend to photograph absolutely everything. Um, so I have it then on my laptop, and um, I find that very useful to have to, 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 to do that. And that's only in recent years that archives have allowed you to do that. But, but yeah, it, it sort of does your head in sometimes. And it, no, it's no wonder that I'm a total insomniac when I'm writing a book, because you have these things whirring around in your head the whole time, you know, and you're trying to make sense of them, how, how you're going to structure the thing. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's it, it is quite complicated. You look like you enjoy the work, though. You, you look like you're a, a happy historian. <laughs> I, no, I really do because uh, uh, you know. It, also, I feel that some of these people, like Colonel Howley, have slightly been airbrushed from history, um, and they haven't been given the credit which is due to them. Colonel Howley was pretty much the first person to say. The wartime alliance is over. We're heading towards a Cold War. Stalin can't be trusted. Wake up, Washington. Wake up, Whitehall. You're you're going down the wrong road here, you know. And it was only, it took several years for his message, which came from direct experience of dealing with his opposite, Soviet opposite number in Berlin. It took several years before that finally sank in. And of course, then the whole policy of both America and Britain would change and they would realise Stalin is a murderous criminal who can't be trusted. <laughs> from, from, I suppose, looking at, at the, the books you've written and the books that you're writing now, I get the impression you're you're moving into this Cold War sphere and it's it's ignited something in you. You know, you, you you seem to want to, to investigate more on this, do you? The book I'm writing at the moment is um, not Cold War, but heading towards it. It's actually the story of, of the moment when Britain and America became allies of the Soviet Union. And they knew absolutely nothing about Stalin. Stalin was a complete enigma. And it was realised right from the beginning that the Churchill and Roosevelt would have to send a small team into Moscow, into the Kremlin, to deal directly face-to-face -face with Stalin. And I'm telling the story of the three people who are extraordinary in themselves. It's a father and a daughter, a 24-year-old socialite, who went with her father. Um, that was the American team. And then there's the British uh, Archibald Clark Carr, who was sent in as well. And these guys 
uh, these three um, got to know Stalin extremely intimately and wrote a lot of letters, diaries, uh, and accounts of what it was like to be sitting in his study, face to face with him and trying to deal with him. And it's really interesting. Wow, rather cold, I would imagine. God, I, I don't think I'd fancy that. <laughs> I do negotiate for a living, but no, I wouldn't like to negotiate for Stalin. No, that, 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 that's for sure. And there's a couple of options on um, your book about Churchill uh, as, uh, for TV, yeah. right? And there's, there's something else in the office. Yeah, and also right? my, my, one of my very early books, Nathaniel's Nutmeg, is also, uh, you know, but it's, you always always dream of this happening and um someone buys the option you know and then and then it's rather out of your hands and you don't hear anything and often these projects they have a habit of um you know going uh not not ever happening um that it's immensely expensive to make these 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 films or tv shows um and they're just enormous projects you know so i'm 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 waiting <laughs> uh, wait <That's> it. <laughs> fingers crossed <laughs> Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Um, I'd love to talk just a, li a little bit more before you go about uh, Lionel Crabb because he was a, a, a scuba diver. So just could could you give our, our listeners a little bit of a, an introduction and a, and a backstory to that? Uh, so just at least to give them a flavour to get stuck into the, the series, which I'm just about to Great, do great. Yeah, so this is a Ministry of Secrets and it's a story, as you, as you say, of Lionel Crabb, this Famous, he was a famous wartime hero, a diver. Um, he'd done all sorts of extraordinary things during the war. Notably, he'd saved many of the great buildings of Venice, which had been mined underwater by the Germans. So the whole lot was going to collapse and he diffused these mines. Became a great hero. Um, he was uh, a, a well-known figure in Britain. He's said to be a model for James Bond. Um, there was even a major movie made about him uh, so called The Silent Enemy, all about his heroics during the Second World War. So this was a very famous um, war hero, well known in the country, who then in 1956 undertook a dive um, and was never seen again. And this was a great shock to people. Um, it was also, it led to the government beginning a cover-up that, that lasts to this day. And that's what's really extraordinary. And so in the podcast, not only do we reconstruct Lionel Crabbe's life, his dive, um, and what happened to him, but we also look at the contemporary side is who today covers up stories? Who? How does it work? How do they do it? You know, And it's that part of the story is every bit as fascinating as the story of actually what happened to Lionel Crabbe. And I don't want to give too much away, but I can say by date, we actually solve what happened so it's it was which we which we were not even sure we'd be able to do when we set out on the podcast but we interviewed the some fairly extraordinary people who were on the inside so uh yeah it's it's been great. God, so conspiracies at play this is interesting yeah, I mean, there are all sorts of all sorts of theories of what happened to Crab, and we follow through, and we to have some amazing interviews with them. Uh, and yeah, the, the conspiracy is a, is a big part of this story, but the cover up as well, and and the bungled cover up, because as one of our experts said, um, it's very hard to cover up something effectively. There will always be holes, there will always be cracks in the cover up, and if you can get inside the cracks of the cover up, then you have a chance of exposing the truth, and that's um, that's exactly what we did. 
So um, yeah, it's been a long a labour of love. It's taken um, my producer and I. We've been we worked on it for about two over two years, in fact, all, the last four months very intensively. And I have to say, my producer was also happens to be my oldest friend, Sarah Peters, who used to work for the BBC. So it's really great to work on a project when you're you're working with a really close friend of yours as well. That, that that story will end up going on TV now, I'm sure. <laughs> that, that, that's for sure. Um, amazing stuff. And I suppose as a diver, he would be part of the special boat service. Is that right? Well, he? Um, he was part of the Royal Royal Navy diving unit. Um, okay, he'd been retired, okay. and this is all. It's all part of the story. He he'd been retired by 1956, so so that uh, made him an interesting choice for a very um, underhand operation that was taking place then so um, yeah. we'll, we'll have to get you on to the case of jfk i i've recently just delved into that i had a cursory knowledge of it all and now all of a sudden now i'm, I'm uh, deep diving into podcasts and all sorts of things about it and i i don't know what to believe i don't know what to believe but uh certainly uh there's there's, there's plenty of uh yes <laughs> ducking and diving and dodging and all those things Sorting out a fact from fiction is one of the things that, I mean, that's what took us so long as well, because we really wanted to, we wanted to really explore the story, but really try and get to the heart of the matter. And and most importantly, why the government is still covering it up and will not release a file until 2057. This is really exceptional. And I did petition the cabinet office to release the file and they refused on grounds of national security, which seems completely ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I'll still be here in 2057 <laughs> to wait around. Well, thank you so much, Giles Milton. It's been a real pleasure. Um, I've, look, I, yeah, as I said, you're, you're an amazing author. You bring history to life. So anybody that's listening out there that hasn't read any of Giles' books, well, at least you're in for a treat. You know, you'll get something very, very exciting. So thank you so much. And maybe uh, we'll, we'll, we'll stay in touch with some of your other things. I'd love to talk to you about uh, your next book. When we come out. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's been a great pleasure. I would like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support during the first five months of the show. Both myself and Neil are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here. We plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future. As you can probably appreciate, it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves. There is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation and we'd very much welcome uh, any donations at all in fact we will be offering a paid subscription tier more on that later and anyhow if uh, you don't have it don't worry keep tuning in we'll be here <laughs>